All right. Well, good morning again. Uh, <laughs> if I haven't had the chance to meet you, my name's Jake. I'm the worship gathering director here at Riverwood Church. And if you do know me, then you're probably wondering, Jake, what are you doing? Why? Wait, I already had my fair share of, of Jake in the first moments when I got here. What are you doing uh, up here? And I lost a bet. So that's what. No, uh, I'm joking. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Aaron and I were just brainstorming what to do for Labor Day. Uh, last week, we finished up our smaller sermon series, Being a Penny Christian. And next week, we are going to launch back into the book of Acts. And so uh, we, as we were just having a conversation, today was still kind of a mystery. And so to set it up, I have a question for everyone. What is something you did yesterday you're doing today, and you're going to do tomorrow. Okay. Sleep. Breathe, breathe, yes, but I'm waiting for the best one. Okay, not. (laughs) Ha ha. Now, I was going to say, I I was really surprised no one was like, you know, like a baby, eat, sleep, and poop. So, uh, which is true. If it's not, then you need to go see a doctor. But, uh, The one thing that we're going to do is worship. Worshiping. Uh, And I know this sounds like a plug for a worship team. It's not, but it could be. Um, Now, Aaron and I did not best out of five, you know, rock, paper, scissors, to see who'd be preaching on worship. But I just floated the idea, like, what if we did a topical sermon on worship? And Aaron was like, that sounds great. I'll be in Kids Creek. So here I am. Uh, And I do have the honor and privilege of getting to hopefully serve you uh, with this message today. And just a heads up, uh, the theme of worship spans throughout the entire Bible. So we will not necessarily have a primary passage this morning, uh, but we will be hitting various verses and passages throughout our morning together in order to see how the worship of God is woven throughout the beautiful tapestry of God's divinely inspired, inerrant, and perfect word. Uh, And before we dive into this wonderful topic, we need to ask, what is worship? Some of us may feel like this is a no-brainer. Jake, we were there. We just sang songs. You held a guitar. We raised our voices. We worshiped. Uh, And while we did worship through singing and playing of songs, uh, I want us to get a much uh, bigger, much broader understanding than just singing some tunes for maybe 30 minutes uh, once a week. So much so that while I'm going to try to make this sermon as concise as possible, I realize that I have potentially uh, bitten off more than I can chew because this topic is so expansive. Um, so I want to give a working definition, my, my personal working definition for worship. And even though it won't be super extensive, uh, I, I think it will help give us a basis for this morning. So here it is. Here's my definition for worship. Worship is the natural response to and supernatural engagement with who God is and what he's done. And I know that doesn't necessarily do this whole conversation on worship the utmost justice. But as we go along, uh, I'll hopefully be able to clarify and and just better get us to a place of understanding um, when it comes to worship. 
Um, and if you're starting to check out right now because you think this is going to be really, you know, real heady or super luxury, uh, my goal this morning is to actually make this very accessible for everyone, uh, to come alongside you and show you why worship and understanding what it is is so crucial to grasp in our lives. Because whether you know it or not, you are a worshiper. So if you're a note taker, if you got your handouts, uh, there's a spot for notes there. Uh, Manette and I were joking yesterday, like, since I don't have a primary passage, like, what should we put there? And she was like, passage, the Bible. Uh, And so it didn't make it in the final draft, but it's a good joke. Uh, So yeah, take notes uh, if you're a note taker. If not, today's the perfect day to start. Uh, So how are we worshipers? Jake, you, you said we're worshipers Prove it. Tell me how. Uh, If you're not a Christian, or if you'd say you'd probably fall into that category of, you know, not religious or or maybe spiritual but not religious, um, you might be asking that question. So here are three ways I believe we are worshipers. First, we are worshipers fundamentally. We are worshipers fundamentally. That at the fundamental, rudimental uh, core and center of who we are as human beings, we are voluntarily and involuntarily worshiping. And we were created that way because as God himself being Trinitarian, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, made us in his very image. Genesis 1 Chapter, uh, chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of, man, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And because God within his Trinitarian communal self is pouring himself out generously into each of his divine persons in perfect harmony in community, because we are made in his image, we reflect and we cannot help but pour ourselves out in worship, which leads us to the second way that we are worshipers. We are worshipers continuously. Scholar and author Harold Best puts it this way in his book, Unceasing Worship. Worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of a chosen or choosing God. And he goes on to say that we were created continuously outpouring. Note that I did not say we were created to be continuous outpours, nor can I dare imply that we are created to worship. This would suggest that God is an incomplete person whose need for something outside of himself, worship, completes his sense of himself. It might not even be safe to say that we are created for worship, Because the inference can be drawn that worship is a capacity that can be separated out and eventually relegated to one of several categories of being. I believe it is strategically important, therefore, to say that uh, that we were created continuously outpouring. We are created in that condition, in that instant, imago Dei, which means 
the image of God. We were made in the image of God. We did not graduate into being in the image of God. We were, by divine fiat, already in the image of God. At the instant the Spirit breathed into our dust. Hence, we are created continuously outpouring. We see this uh, continuous nature uh, in Genesis 2. Uh, when God commands uh, Adam, he puts Adam and subsequently Eve in the garden to work the ground and keep it. God commands them to work the ground, which uh, worship pastor and author Zach Hicks notes is worshiping language similar to that of the Levite priests. That the first role we see as worshipers is gardeners taking and working with the ground to make something beautiful, to make something fruitful. And so I'd like us to consider this thing. Whoever we are, whatever we're doing, saying, or thinking is perpetual worship. Think about it for a second. You know, from the moment you wake up, you're worshiping. As you, you know, get out of bed, as you start getting ready for work, as you start taking care of your kids, as you're on your morning commute, as you watch a movie or play a game or have a conversation, whether you're singing a song with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ or you're singing in the shower, whether you're cooking a meal or reading a bedtime story or going to bed, even sleeping and dreaming. It's all an act of worship. You can't help it. We can't help but pour ourselves out to our families, our friends, our coworkers, even strangers in acts of worship. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we are worshiping those people or those things or those activities. But we worship through those means and mediums. Which leads to our third way how we are worshipers. We are worshipers passionately. Whoever you are, wherever you're coming from, whatever you're doing, we engage in worship with passion. Now we can grow dull, we can, we can become stale in our passion, but there's always a degree and a direction in which our passion exists and is going. And for some, of this, for, for some of us, this passion is more easily expressed uh, intellectually. You know, our minds are engaged in thoughtful dialogues and compelling ideas. For some of us, it's more easily expressed emotionally. Uh, our hearts are moved by powerful storytelling or, or stirred by the powerful lyrics of a song. And for some of us, it's more easily expressed physically. Uh, you know, whether it's going for a morning jog or going through a rigorous workout or just something that gets us moving, giving a sense of satisfaction. I just also want to make the note that I am not just uh, putting people in camps saying like, you only worship intellectually, you only worship emotionally, you only worship physically. Because we are holistic beings. Because God is one He's united in his Trinitarian self. His persons are not disconnected nor segregated from each other. And so because we are made in the image of God, 
we are not so simplistic. We are not one-trick ponies. We are rather beautifully complex, worshiping, outpouring in every extent of our being and doing it at all times. And God wants us, not what we have to offer him. Even the beginning lyric of the glory of God, the first song that we sang, like, what can I offer you that isn't already yours? And so King David in in Psalm 51, as he's repenting of his adultery with Bathsheba and his responsibility for the murder of her husband, He's crying out in repentance, saying this, You do not desire a sacrifice, or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. And God wants every facet, every, every bit of our very existence for himself. And he's made us worshipers, worshiping. So how are we worshipers? We're worshipers fundamentally, continuously, and passionately. And whatever is the object of our worship ultimately shapes us. With each repetition as we return day in and day out, to direct our worship to someone or something, we are conformed to its nature And it creates in us this habitual notion to come back for more. Who or what we worship matters. And while this is how we were created by God uh, to live, there's a problem. The problem is that while every atom in our bones, while every cell in our bodies, everything in us and about us is fundamentally Uh, continuously and passionately geared worshiping, we are born in sin, fallen, distant, and apart from God because we are willingly sinful as we run away in rebellion against God. Rather than living according to his design, being daily transformed and renewed into the image and likeness of Christ, we, we often lay ourselves on the altar and give ourselves up to false gods, blind and deaf idols that will ultimately leave us disappointed and destroyed. In Genesis 3, Eve was deceived by the serpent And consequently, Adam and Eve thought that if they'd eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would be like God when in fact, God had already made them like him. But they thought that they could be their own gods and so they disobeyed. They covered themselves up and ran and hid from God. Likewise, When Moses was up on Mount Sinai, the Israelites demanded that God's physical, materially crafted idols would be made for them so that they could have a guide instead of God. And we do the same. If we really dig down deep, we can't confess otherwise. 
16th century uh, reformer John Calvin famously said, the human heart is an idol factory. So the bottom line there is that we either make idols of ourselves or for ourselves. And I felt it was so fitting to have uh, Michelle Wheeler open us up in worship this morning, reading from uh, the end of Romans 11 and the beginning of Romans 12. Romans 12, 1 through 2 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And you see from all the way from Romans 1 verse 18 to, uh, to, to Romans eleven thirty six, Paul is arguing that God has been so infinitely merciful towards us that, that we are to give ourselves entirely back to him because of his saving grace. Such mercy that if we had put, say, you know, our greatest enemy in the back of our mind, whoever you think is the person that's just the worst, you put that person in your place and you were to step back into Jesus's sandals, I don't think you could do it. I don't think any of us could do it. So we are not owed mercy, yet he justifies the ungodly whose works work against them. And by grace, through faith, he freely shows us mercy. Like we see Paul using the sacrificial language from the Old Testament to point us to the new life that we have as Christians. That we have been saved and are being sanctified in our mind, heart, body, and soul. That we are to be living sacrifices. Meaning that we have been made alive in Christ from the dead. And if you look throughout the whole you know, entirety of the Old Testament sacrificial system, you will not see a whole lot of sac- like living sacrifices. Because they die. And yet, Paul's words... Here, he puts it like this because of what Jesus has done. We are not to be put to death because he was. Those temple sacrifices and animal deaths foreshadowed what his sacrifice and his death would fulfill for us in our place for our sin. And for some of us this morning, you you might be wondering, you might be asking, okay, but why should we worship God? Like, honestly, why? Why should I worship if I'm not inclined to? And I would humbly submit to you because he is worthy and deserving of all glory and because it belongs to him and him alone. And we all, whether we know it or not, again, we are all worshiping worshipers. We all glorify something. We all glorify something whether we know it or not. And God does not command worship because he needs it as if he's lacking glory, as if his tank is going on empty, but rather because it already belongs to him. So then we also need to understand what is glory? 
We, we tend to throw this around and we may not have a, a nuanced understanding of what this word glory means. So what is glory? And if, if we're in our worshiping, we're supposed to give it to God. What are we supposed to do? How do we know what glory is? What is glory? And former pastor Tim Keller, who uh, recently went to be with the Lord uh, just a few months ago, back in May, he puts it this way. What is God's glory? It is his infinite weight, his supreme importance. To glorify God is to obey him unconditionally. To ever say, I'll obey if, is to give something else more importance or glory than God. But while glorifying God is never less than obedience, it is more. God's glory also means his inexpressible beauty and perfection. It does not glorify him then if we only ever obey God simply out of duty. We must give him not only our will, but also our heart as we adore and enjoy him, as we find him infinitely attractive. And there's no greater beauty than to see the Son of God laying aside his glory and dying for us. And who or what we worship and glorify we put our identities into that as well. If we put our identities into anything else than God, if we put anything else in the place of God, if we substitute any created things in place of the one who is worthy and deserving of all glory, it won't be able to bear the weight. It might appear to hold for a second or two, but it will be crushed and you will be thoroughly broken because you've put your identity in a flawed savior. You've put your identity in a savior that can't even save you. Spouses, odds are at some point in your relationship, you had a very high idealistic, perhaps unrealistic expectation that you put on your spouse. Now, there are grounds to have expectations. You should have expectations. And when they didn't meet that ideal, the idol of them that you had made in your heart caved in. And so you might go spiraling, wonder, did I marry the right person? Or did I push them to failure? And parents, we can fall into this trap as well by uh, making an idol of our children and, and worshiping and bowing to them. And when they miss the mark, you know, we, we can do this because sometimes, uh, depending on if they are your, you know, perceived second chance at success where you had failed growing up, when they fail, that will not only crush them, but it will crush your other idol of being the perfect parent. That you might go, you know, pacing the floor, being like, okay, where did I go wrong? What did I do? Why did, what did I do to cause them to do that? And part of that is because you've put your identity in your parenting. And the same goes for kids idolizing parents. 
Parents, when we make mistakes, we need our kids to see the real us so that in our brokenness, in our weakness, we are able to relate to one another as people who are made in the image of God. When we idolize others, we place an unbearable weight upon them, expecting perfection according to our own standards that we cannot and were not meant to bear. Only one human being lived perfectly according to God's standards. And his name was Jesus, who made a way for the forgiveness of sins for sinners like us. So, a few things before we come to the table together. Here are three ways that worship or, or true and proper worship works in the lives of God's redeemed people. First, it helps us respond to who God is and what he's done. That pulls a little bit from my definition. But in Galatians, as Paul is making the case that Gentile believers are grafted into the same promise of salvation as Jewish believers, he says that God sends the Spirit of Christ into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. That verse is Galatians 4, 6, for those of you note takers. And so saints, when you are drawn by God's loving kindness to repentance, a 180 change of mind, and you come to faith in him through Jesus Christ, his saving work causes you to respond to him. When that switch flips in your life, when he takes your hardened heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh for his Holy Spirit to take up residence in you, you cannot help but welcome him back into your life, into your heart with joy and thanksgiving, all because of who he is and what he's done. The second way in which worship works in our lives is that it reminds us of Christ's redemption. In moments where we can think back, we can flash back into moments where uh, it was before we were a Christian, or maybe in moments now where we stumble and fall back into the ditch of sin in our lives, we can often forget who we have become in Christ. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, who the writer of Hebrews this is Hebrews 12, verse 2, says he's the author and perfecter of our faith. We are reminded that not only was God faithful to rescue us at a certain point in time, way back when, but he is still beside you. And the third way that worship works is that it reforms every nook and cranny of our lives to look more and more like Christ. Not only do we respond to who God is and what he's done for us, not only are we reminded that we're still his kids whom he'll never abandon, but by his grace he's working in us. As, as Paul says in Philippians 1.6, that God will finish what he started, bringing you to completion when we meet him face to face. 
when our entire lives point back to him, revolve around his word and are centered on his work, we are being recalibrated, reoriented, transformed, and renewed by him to look, live, and love like him. So as we are corporately worshiping God together this morning, we're going to respond to what he's done for us through taking communion, prayer, reflection, and singing. We're reminded of how Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we should have lived and how he died the death that we should have died because the wages of our sin was death. That his bread, or that his broken body, that is the bread, and his shed blood, that is the juice, were given up to reconcile us to relationship with our Heavenly Father. And as the words in these songs that we're going to sing together depict how his worst moments redeemed us for an eternity with him. And we're being reformed as we go to God in prayer, as we're confessing our sins, singing his praises, giving him glory through everything we do. And so during this time, uh, we're going to make this a slightly extended time of, of worship, worshiping God through communion, prayer, and singing. Uh, you'll notice how we have the tables uh, central here. And so as, uh, as you come to the, to the elements to receive them, I ask that you would form lines through the center. I'm going to have Ed and Matt come up to each table uh, to receive you and remind you the body of Christ broken for you the shed blood of Christ poured out for you. Then as you make your way back around to your seats, you'll see Bridget and Cassie will be there to receive you for prayer. Ed and Matt will join them shortly. And if you're not a Christian, we here at Riverwood just want to welcome you. We actually planted Riverwood Church for you. And we want to invite you to find and follow Jesus with us. And so I would just politely ask that you abstain from taking the elements. That the reason we are taking them together as Christians, we take them because we believe that because of what Jesus did for us upon the cross, our sins have been forgiven. That he exchanged our sin and unrighteousness for his grace and his righteousness. So don't take the elements, but we still would invite you to come forward for prayer to the sides. Let's bring our needs before one another. As Christians, we recognize that we are all people in need of prayer, that we are all people in need of our Father in heaven who loves us and sent his Son to save us so that the Holy Spirit may dwell in us.